the most compelling warnings to the West about radical Islam, those would come from someone who grew up in the world of Islam. Today on Uncommon Knowledge, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Ayan Hirsi Ali was born in Somalia in 1969. In 1992, she fled an arranged marriage, escaping to the Netherlands. From 2003 to 2006, she served in the Dutch parliament, warning about the incompatibility of radical Islam with the Western way of life. In 2004, she received international attention when the filmmaker Theo Van Gogh, her friend and collaborator, was murdered. Van Gogh had directed Submission, a short film that Ms. Ali wrote about the oppression of women under Islam. The murderer, a radical Muslim, used a knife to pin a death threat for Ms. Ali to Mr. Van Gogh's body. In 2006, the Dutch Minister for Immigration attempted to revoke Ms. Ali's citizenship. The courts ultimately upheld Ms. Ali's citizenship, but she resigned from the Dutch Parliament and moved here to the United States. Ms. Ali is the author of a number of books, including the 2007 volume Infidel, the 2015 work Heretic, Why Islam Needs a Reformation, and published this year, The Challenge of Dawah, Political Islam is Ideology and Movement and How to Counter It. Ms. Ali is a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Ayan Hirsi Ali, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. The nature of the problem. Ayan Hirsi Ali testifying before Congress this past spring, quote, two successive administrations, you're talking about those of George W. Bush and Barack Obama, two successive administrations have approached the problem of political Islam with a completely flawed strategy. The illusion that a line could somehow be drawn between Islam, a supposed religion of, pre of peace adhered to by a moderate majority, and violent extremism engaged in by a tiny minority. Are you, were you telling Congress that Islam isn't a religion of peace? I was telling Congress that Islam is part religion and part a political philosophy. And that if you focus only on the religious part, praying, fasting, you know, there you see nothing but peace. I don't see anything but peace. Right. If people want to pray and fast and be together peacefully, you know, have their rituals, I don't. I think that's protected, and I don't think that that necessarily leads to any kind of violence. You may object to it if you're not religious, but it is religion as we understand it, as the founding fathers, as the framers of the institution might have understood it. Yes. But then there is Islam, which is really the major part of Islam, which is a political philosophy. It's a prescription for how society ought to be uh, built, how society ought to be furnished, governed. And that philosophy is, A, not compatible with our American constitutional liberal democracy or any other secular type of government. And that's what we need to be discussing. It's a set of ideas, a set of principles, uh, values, and there are people who are committed to not only practicing it, but also to promoting it. And some of them are so committed to it that it's not enough for them to establish it within their own societies. They want it to rule the whole world. So here, 
crude question, but it's going to be on everybody's mind. Yeah. And that question is, how big is the problem? 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. That's, yeah. a, that's a little over a fifth of the population of the entire planet. That's right. And are you saying to us, we have a problem with 1.6 billion? Or are you saying we're simply drawing the line in the wrong place? That, that somehow or other, if you look at some, you're looking only for some tiny sliver of the population that is radical, terrorist, and so forth, you're missing something. We're drawing the line in the wrong place. Or are you saying the religion and the prescription for how to organize human society are so tightly intertwined mm -hmm. that the problem is indeed with Islam itself? I think the distinction I want us to make first and foremost is the distinction between the doctrine, Islamic doctrine, Islamic political doctrine, and human beings, the adherents. So let's say we, we agree on the, just what the basic facts are. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad founded a religion that then he later, 10 years into the religion, he developed into a political doctrine and that evolved over time. They were conquest. Islam was an empire. And it's a do the doctrine that governed that empire on the one hand. On the other hand, there are the human beings. There are the 1.5 or 1.6 billion people out there. And one Muslim varies from another. There is a great deal of diversity. There is diversity of geography, diversity of language, of gender, of income, of age. There is a great deal of diversity among Muslims. The most important one to us is there are some Muslims who, when they look at, when they look at Islam, they just choose what is religious about it. Mm -hmm. Again, the praying, the fasting, the community, or the, the communal rituals. And you're saying... Uh, and then there are Muslims who say, no, that's not enough. It's not enough to be Muslim in the religious sense only. You have to accept and abide and practice and promote Islam also in its political sense. And it's that group. I don't know how big they are. But in terms of drawing lines, I think that's where we need to start. I see. All right. So let me... You, you write in The Challenge of Dawah, your testimony before Congress, your book Heretic, calling for a reformation of Islam. You're, of course, aware of the whole history of Islam, but you're, mostly you're talking about the present moment and what the West, the United States in particular, needs to do. However, let me ask you to address the history for a moment, and the argument with, of which you're well aware runs simply as follows. Mm -hmm. It takes a moment to set this up, but it's, it's an important question. Islam emerges in the Arabian Peninsula, in the seventh century. And within a century, it has swept across North Africa, which had been substantially Christian. In other yeah. words, there is a conquest that takes place. Yes. And by the middle of the eighth century, there is far north as central France. We yeah. have the Battle of Tours. And for seven centuries, Islam holds most of what we call Spain today. And then in the 16th century, they conquer Constantinople. And a couple of decades later, um, the world of Islam is prevented from dominating the Mediterranean only because the wind happens to favor the Venetian fleet at the Battle of Lepanto. Yeah. And then we have, as recently as 1683, Muslim armies lay siege to Vienna. That's the one that is so striking to me. 1683 is 20 years after, a little more than 20 years after the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Yeah. And Islam is still attempting to invade Central Europe. Yeah. Okay. So the argument would run, 
And don't forget India. Don't forget parts of Asia. Don't forget Africa. Okay. So all right, you're not yeah. you not only grant the argument, you're 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 you're, you're, you're heightening it, so to speak. Yes, yes. And the argument would run. Thank you very much for attempting to reassure us. But truly, we need to be wide awake. This really is a clash of civilizations. And there is something within Islam yeah. which dem has demonstrated for all 14 centuries an animus, an aggressiveness toward the West. The problem is Islam itself. How do you deal with that argument? I think, again, you have to go to the political blueprint. If you take the American uh, founding fathers, it's about 200 and something years old. It's, it's a relatively it's a young philosophy. Oh, I see. Yep. Yeah. By comparison it, with Islam, it's young, yes. Yeah. Yes. Even if you take classical liberalism, uh, it's, these are relatively young ideas. Uh, and then even younger, you get to communism and all the rest of it. So if you think of Islam as a political philosophy, it's really one of the oldest ideas, one of the oldest governing principles. It's not Western. Um, it is not as organized. And it doesn't make logical sense to the Western mind, mm -hmm. the Western mind of today. Mm -hmm. I think back then, if you read some of the works of, you know, um, Gibbons and beyond that, they seemed to have understood what they were dealing with back then. But today, it seems to me that there are very few uh, people in the West who really think that they understand uh, the, the layeredness of Islam. That's why we need qualifiers like radical and extreme and fundamentalist. You know, these are all words. Uh, this is a vocabulary that we use for Christianity and for Western phenomena that we then try to put on uh, on a different civilization. Mm -hmm. So I think first we have to acknowledge, yes, this is, this is a, a, an old political philosophy. It's been around for a long time and we don't understand it. Part of it is also we don't want to understand it. Mm. Why don't we want to understand it? I, I don't know the answer to that question, but again, let me speculate. If, if you g get deep into the values and the principles that are promoted uh, from within the political Islamic doctrine, and you put them next to our, you know, Western political ideas, yes. you get to a place of zero-sum games. Either it's that or it's that. It's, they are yeah. incompatible. It becomes No binary. society can be both. Yeah, no society can be both. And the contemporary Western mind is taught to collaborate, to cooperate, to compromise. Pluralism. Pluralism, tolerance, all to me fantastic ideas and a fantastic attitude toward the world. But sometimes you get to a place where it is impossible to compromise. And I think deep down, the contemporary Western mind just, it's not that we don't get it, it's that when you get it, then what? Right, right. We don't want, all right, that's, you made about three points that I want to follow up on. But <laughs> yeah. first, first, you quote here in the challenge of Dawah, and then you mentioned it again in your testimony before Congress. You quote Karl Popper. Karl Popper is middle 20th century yes. philosopher, uh, the man, a great defender of, the, of what he termed the open society. There's yes. Popper, Hayek, a number of others. And Popper is this tremendously important intellectual figure for defending the West as it had evolved by the middle of the last century. Yeah. And Karl Popper says, believes in tolerance up to a point. Yes. 
Let me quote him. This is a passage that you footnoted, so I looked up the passage. He's writing in 1945, and clearly he has in mind fascism yeah. and communism. But here's what Popper writes. As long as we, Westerners, as long as we can counter intolerant philosophies by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them, if necessary, even by force. Yeah. We should claim that any movement preaching intolerance places itself outside the law, and we should consider incitement to intolerance and persecution as criminal yeah. in the same way as we should consider incitement to murder or kidnapping or to the revival of the slave trade as criminal." Close quote. So here you have yeah. this paradox that in order to sustain a tolerant society, you need to draw very sharp lines yes. around it. Yeah and say this inside, yeah. as much tolerance as we can manage, but there are lines, and outside, we claim the right to suppress yes. the intolerant. Now, that is extremely strong language. Yeah. And there were people even at the time who thought that was a little going a little far yeah. toward communism, for example. Do you want to amend this language in any way as a statement of principle for the way we ought to deal with Islam because the tightness of religious belief and political theory, it's so closely intertwined with a fundamental outlook on man's relation to God. Do you want to, amend, do you want to soften it? Or do you want to let Popper stand as a, as, a, as a kind of guiding principle for us? I would like uh, to let Popper stand. And again, I'm glad you mentioned 1947, 1945, 1947. Mm -hmm. We're just coming out of the Second World War yes. in the West. We've just been confronted with an ideology that uh, was impossible to compromise with. Yes. And if you remember the early days, uh, you know, the conversations between Chamberlain and Churchill, Chamberlain thought that he could talk some sense into Hitler. Yes. He thought he could negotiate. He thought... Peace you know, in our times. Peace in our times. Right. Appeasement would work. So that was the softening of the language. That was the softening of the attitude toward, you see this evil. You, you really think it just can't be true. This man must want something other yes. than just... Uh, go down a path that could possibly destroy all of us. And this is part of the pattern I've, I, that, I, that I, I take it as you identify. Yeah. Even as in those days, confronting Hitler, uh, Chamberlain, uh, the, the, the people who, the appeasement crowd, mm -hmm. they, they thought, oh yes, yes, he talks that way, but he doesn't really believe it. Yeah. Likewise, during the Cold War, much of the left said, oh, no, 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 that, that the communist stuff, that's just rhetoric. Yeah. Actually, they're just a great power. They want their own sphere of influence. They want a little economic growth. Yeah. They don't really believe it. Yeah. And you argue that we're making much the same mistake, that the radical Islamists, those who, are, those who propose the political Islam, yeah. don't miss, they really believe it. They really believe it, and here they demonstrate it. They teach their children. They sacrifice the lives of their children. What is more valuable to one than their own children? Mm. So they sacrifice the lives and the futures of their own children. They sacrifice their own careers. There are men, I mean, the big famous example is bin Laden, but he's not the only one, who were born into privilege. 
financial privilege, in, in that context, clan and tribal privilege. Mm -hmm. I mean, their families are well respected and honored, they're princes. Mm -hmm. And they set all that aside. They go to some hellhole in Afghanistan and they start promoting these ideas with absolutely everything that they have, everything in them. I can't think of a better illustration, a better demonstration of conviction than that kind of conviction. And it trickles down. It trickles down to the man who takes a van after he's thought all things through to run people over knowing he's going to kill these people, but that he runs the risk of being shot by the police. That is a clear demonstration of conviction. Mm. So if you, if you want, I mean, take some of the, I don't know if you follow some of what goes on in the Palestinian territory, but some of these people who kill and die while killing others, those who, who die as, they're considered to be martyrs, you have streets and squares named after them. Uh, they are seen within the community of radical Muslims as heroes. They're celebrated. They're celebrated more than we celebrate the Founding Fathers, more than we celebrate any of our Western heroes. And what other demonstration do you want of conviction than that? Right. We can go on and say they're mad and you know they're deprived, they're this, they're that. Deprivation plays a role but it is not the cause. And uh, sometimes I would say, I think to me and to you probably, it's madness to take your life. It's madness right. to take other people's lives. But, it, but there's it's, something weirdly appealing about it. Yeah. Con the conviction, the force of conviction. Yeah. Well, this is my speculation. You know the answer to this. My speculation. There, why do we see uh, radicalization of Muslims in the suburbs of Paris? Yeah. Well, here's the question. Why is it that young men, overwhelmingly men, yeah. in the last year or two years left countries in the West, including a few from this country, but many from France, many from Germany, some from Britain, to go fight with ISIS, yeah. who were clearly leading, these are not people who were showering, they were at risk, <laughs> they were dangerous, they were, yeah. but it, th there's something about the purity of conviction that just yeah. do does exercise an appeal. We are built to respond to it, belief. To belief, yeah, right. to something higher than yourself. And Karl Popper describes in The Open Society and Its Enemies, he describes that, you know, in his criticism of Popper, in his criticism of Hegel, uh, he describes how this transcendence of, you know, the human being, subjected to being an instrument in this higher goal. Right. Islam does that, but even better, because it's to God. It's a religious, you see, Plato's argument, Hegel's arguments were all secular, they were man-made. Right. Those who were convinced to go on that path had to, they, they had to be, they had to be persuaded, but here it's the ultimate power. It's right. God. Right. Yeah. The challenge of Dawah. Yeah, and I criticize Popper for, for jumping, for skipping Muhammad. Ah. He goes from Plato to Hegel, and in between, he forgets Muhammad. And I think to a certain degree, my criticism is it's so, you know, a lot of people say some of these thinkers, they are all, everything about them is centered in the West. Yes. So this is, here's a critique of uh, you know, having ignored what's going on in other civilizations, in this case, in the Islamic civilization. Right. Yeah. Look, so the challenge of, of uh, dawah. Jihad is a word that we have, we Americans have gotten to know since 9-11. Yeah. Holy war. 
we're familiar with the term. Yeah. But you're arguing that there's another term with which we really must become familiar. This is mandatory, not yeah. optional. Yeah. And you've written this book about it, The Challenge of Dawa, yeah. which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Would you just, first of all, pronounce it correctly and then tell us what it means? Dawa is the way it's pronounced. And what it means uh, is to plead or to call non-Muslims to Islam. This is um, in emulation of the founder of Islam, Muhammad, who is considered to be a prophet. In the first 10 years in Mecca, that's what he did. He called unbelievers, people who didn't believe him, um, and who believed in several gods, to abandon their gods, abandon their religions, and come to his. And then in the 10 years in Medina that followed, the call, the invitation, the persuasion, the use of language slowly transformed maybe not so slowly, transformed into the use of force. So dawah are all the steps that precede jihad. In fact, you should and could see jihad as an extension of dawah. Mm. So when a non-Muslim is invited to come to Islam and, in, and refuses, then force is justified. But what the dawah um, component does is it... Um, it, it, it puts the Muslim believer who's engaged in it to try several different tools. One of the first requirements of Dawah is to learn as much as you can about the individuals and the community that you are trying to convert. Um, their strengths and their weaknesses, their beliefs, whatever it is that animates them, and then tailor the message to that. So it's not just an, you know, it's not just persuading people to come to Dawah, but you have to, to come to Islam. But it, it, it's more than that. It is um, the strategy of marketing. It is the financials. It is the Islamization, or rather the taking over of those institutions. All of that is Dawah. But Dawah is more than that. It's also directed at the Muslim who's not so observant. Mm. People who identify as Muslims, but who completely neglect the political aspects of Islam, it's also directed at them. And that's really where it begins, because once you establish that vanguard, then you can use them as da'is. And a da'i is one, da'i is the individual, da'wah is the concept. And you explain to Congress, and again in this book, that we're making a terrible mistake by looking at acts of violence in the Middle East and overlooking Dawah as it is taking place here in the United States itself. Let yeah. me quote your testimony. Dawah is to the Islamists of today what the long march through the institutions was to 20th century Marxists. Yeah. Explain that. The establishment of uh, mosques, of Islamic centers that are paid for by governments like Saudi Arabia and Qatar to promote a, a belief system that is hostile and that is designed to replace the existing, our American system. That is that much. It is gradual. It is a match through the systems, through government, through the media, through education, through the family. And I'm not making these things no, up. No, what no. I've done is right. I've taken, I've, and, I, and I really want to share this with your viewers because we live in the information age. You can access all this information. You can get these dower manuals and just read for yourself how they set out their strategies. Get into cam cam uh, campuses, 
establish Muslim student associations. The Muslim student associations are then to, um, they're given tools and tactics and to Islamize that particular institution. And it's the same for government, the same for media, and it's working. It's working because right now you cannot discuss political Islam. It's been made a taboo. A term Islamophobia has been invented that makes you, especially, I'm talking now to a white man, um, it, 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 it uses your own vulnerabilities against you. Because the minute you start to question um, their goals, their objectives, um, you're not having a conversation about those particular facts. We're going to have a conversation about your bigotry. Right. Because we live in a society now that you know values. Um, I, I I don't know what to say. Claims that we there can be no bigotry. Well, I'll, I'll, I mean, there's the constitutional claim of freedom of religion. Right. Yeah. That's, so let me quote you your testimony before Congress yet again. The biggest challenge the United States faces in combating political Islam is, it, and you do, then do not say is ISIS or terrorists. No. The biggest challenge is the extent to which agents of Dawah can exploit the constitutional and legal protections that guarantee American citizens freedom of religion and freedom of speech, freedoms that would, of course, be swept away if the Islamists achieve their goals. That's right. Well, that sounds like a nearly fatal vulnerability. Yeah. Frankly, it sounds fatal. I'm <laughs> hoping you'll tell me it's only nearly fatal. It's, it's nearly fatal if we go back to the Popper principle where our society then says enough is enough and up to here, not further, we're going to, you know, we're going to enforce the rule of law. We're not going to, I, I don't know, uh, I think one of America's great judges uh, said, well, the, the Constitution is not a suicidal pact. Not a suicide pact, exactly. It's not a suicide pact. And so the, the Constitution is not, these freedoms are not suicidal pacts, uh, suicide pacts. And, and I think that's where we are at now, that uh, maybe there are people inside America who feel that there's nothing to do about it. We have these freedoms and we're just going to be lethargic and... If, if what I'm saying is true, then let it just unfold, let it all take place. Um, of course, I, I disagree with that, uh, with as much force as is in me, and I'm hoping to get Americans to agree that we, we can agree on trying to fight this particular ideology the way we fought previous ideologies with the same outcomes. Mm. And in the challenge of Dawah, and also in your uh, testimony to Congress, you present about a dozen and a half specific policy proposals, starting points. Yeah. Um, I mean, not as if you drafted legislation, but this is, this is, these are kinds of things we should be thinking about. Let me take a couple of these. I'm quoting again from this book. Yeah. As a condition of U.S. friendship, the administration should require foreign governments to stop supporting and financing subversive Islamist activities in the United States, close quote. First of all, how big is that problem? I think it's very big. Tens of millions uh, in a, a year. That big? It, and of what we can see, of what we know, some of these finances, you know, the Treasury will know better than I do, but some of what we see is, uh, I mean, in a trillion dollar economy, you might think it's just a drop in the ocean, but I think it's a lot of money. Uh, All right. So Donald Trump visited the Middle East. Yeah. 
as we taped this program, this is less than a month ago, uh, less than six weeks ago, and in Saudi Arabia itself, where he had not only the Saudi royal family, but leaders from 50 Different. Muslim countries joined Trump and the Saudi royal family for this event, and he told them to face down terrorists. He said, in effect, knock it off. Mm -hmm. You've got to, you've, this new moment here, we have to join together yeah. to defeat radical Islam. Mm -hmm. Was he a sucker? Do you think there's a chance this might, that Saudi Arabia, which has been funding Wahhabism, the other countries in the Gulf that have been funding uh, the expansion of this radical mm -hmm. view of Islam, will, will they knock it off? Is there a new moment here? Or was he just being a chump like other American presidents? I think what, I can't speak for him obviously, but let me, let me make an attempt at analysis. And my first point of analysis would be, uh, he got a lot of uh, heat for saying, uh, we're not going to let Muslims into the United States until we figured out who's who and what right. the problem is. And I think this is Donald Trump moderating his stance and saying, well, we've got to start somewhere. And then made uh, these statements and started with this speech where he accommodates a lot of their language. Because if I were him, I would actually use the word Dao instead of the word terrorism. I see. Yeah. Terror is political violence. It gets to violence. Now, what we are really it's talking... It's already making the mistake that you pointed out. You don't focus on the violence. Focus on the underlying ideas. Yeah. And the activities of propagation. Obviously. Yeah. All right. But if he stood there <laughs> talking to the king of Saudi Arabia, and, and this is the crucible of Dawah, um, that would be a completely different conversation. And I don't think from a diplomatic perspective that that's the kind of conversation you want to have in public. Mm -hmm. I think behind closed doors, it would make a great deal of sense to use, you know, the Trumpian language of explicitness and say, this is what we are, we are it's, it's the Dao, it's the ideas and the ideology and the principles of Sharia, of Jihad, of commanding rights and forbidding wrong. He'll have to get fluent in that himself first. But that's the kind of conversation we need but to I, have. Uh, here you have, we have this wonderfully well-read yeah. Sophisticated, beautifully well-spoken, what you are is a public intellectual. Yeah. And you sound to me as though you think Donald Trump is at least making a few good first steps. Oh, I think he's making... You may be the only public intellectual in America who's willing to stand up for Donald Trump. Well, I'm, there are more, but right. it is, I'm not standing up for, it, Donald Trump is... I'm the, trying to make yeah. you feel a little uncomfortable and see what you do with it. Yeah, so I'm standing up for the principles of the United States of America. He is our elected president. Mm -hmm. And I want him to succeed, and especially when it comes to this issue, I want him to succeed just the way I want and would have wanted Hillary Clinton to succeed if she became president, or Mickey Mouse as far as I'm concerned. To me, it is about our leader, the man who has taken, or the woman who has taken an oath to protect our country and our constitution, to stand up to a force that is hostile and to make it as explicit as possible what it is that we are fighting. Now, in his Youngstown speech in Ohio, he did that. Which was during the campaign. During the campaign, yes. yeah. He did put, he called it radical Islamic extremism, and he put it on par, he called it an ideology, he put it on par with fascism and communism and national socialism. That's where it belongs.
Now, should he, if he had said that in his speech in Saudi Arabia, I think it would be here in the United States that people would go up in, you know, they're already really anti-Trump. It would be even more anti-Trump, which is a pity. But uh, whether we say it in public or not, whether it's President Trump or some other president, that's the conversation we need to be having. Well, so you have just a moment then on American politics. You've got Donald Trump imperfectly, maybe even stumblingly and bumblingly, but he's making, he's taking steps in the right direction, correct? That's yeah. a, that would be your assessment, yeah. all right. But he has only, he has the support. The polls seem to have peaked at 40% or so, so that's 60% who are against him, and some yeah. virulently so, as you just noted. And, uh, well, tell me what happened uh, when you were questioned by Democrats in this, during this testimony before Congress that I've quoted a few times. There were, I think, three or four women senators, all Democrats, yeah. who were in that hearing. Just describe the scene. They didn't ask. I was invited by them. Uh, so uh, a Republican Senator Ron Johnson and Claire McCaskill, who is the ranking member, I have the letter. She's a Democrat. She's yes. a Democrat, mm -hmm. but said, please come and speak to us about the ideology of radical Islam. And I went there and I didn't get any questions from the Democrats and neither did the woman who was co-testifying with me, Asra Nomani, who is in fact a practicing Muslim. And Because they would not have wanted your answers. They would not have wanted to hear your answers. You speculate. I speculate, yeah. My speculation is they would not want to hear my answers because it puts them in a comfortable, in an uncomfortable place. Is there any Democrat? So what I'm poking around here for is yeah. Donald Trump is taking the right first steps. He's an extremely unpopular president. Yeah. Who on the who who among the Democrats? Is there anyone on the left who's getting it right? Where do you see? I'm just ask, asking a political question. How yeah. do you begin to move? this huge nation of ours in the right direction yeah. without a few figures among the Democrats or on the left? I know several Democrats who are in politics, uh, in think tanks, uh, just in business, normal people in Silicon Valley, lots of Democrats who get the problem and who, who really understand what we're dealing with. But it is not the official DNC, you know, yes. Democratic National Congress, uh, talking points, and it is not the Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer talking points. It's unfortunate that we now have a democracy where opposition, you know, healthy opposition has become obstruction and right. resistance, and that kind of language is used. Uh, but and it's not, um, I have to say, it, it's not only with this issue. Uh, if you look at all the other issues, there's this waiting for Donald Trump to be impeached or to go away somehow, and then we'll start having sensible conversations. But that is not how the world works. You can't just postpone these enormous problems until you get someone you want. Right. Yeah. Last couple of questions. Once again, your testimony before Congress. We need to develop a strategy to counter not only the jihadists, but the complex ideological infrastructure known as Dawa. Yeah just as we countered both the Red Army and the ideology of communism in the Cold War." Yeah. Close quote. Soviet communism lasted seven decades. Yeah. Islam has been with us for 14 centuries. Yeah. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic because we have defeated in the past um, these ideologies you mentioned, um, the communism and uh, national socialism that were in some ways 
uh, more determined, modern, fighting with modern tools. And Islam has been around for a very long time, but the jihad is the political uh, Islam of our day, buys weapons from us, takes innovation from us, needs us to destroy us. And so in some ways, I think we should be more optimistic because A, we've done it before. They can't destroy us without our permission. They can't destroy us without our permission. They can't destroy us without us letting them destroy us. And even if you just put the two ideas side by side, one thing, uh, I, I was talking to Andy McCarthy, the former prosecutor. Yes. And he was uh, from, you know, as a prosecutor, he's really tried to fight this fight within the justice system. And he's come to the conclusion, you know, the biggest part of this battle should be won in the cultural arena, mm. the battlefield of ideas. And if you take it there, I think that we can easily win if only we would stand up for our own ideas. If you're promoting Sharia and you make it explicit, you're selling Sharia to someone like me. Uh, I left Islam. So for those who leave Islam is the death penalty. I'm a woman. You want to sell Sharia to me? It puts me in a position of chattel. You're trying to sell Sharia to a Jewish person or a Christian. They've been relegated to the status of dhimmis or second class, third class, right? Um, and then you show people the places on this planet today in 2017 where Sharia is reality. And you see a lot of pain and suffering, discrimination, divisiveness, poverty. So it's, it's not a difficult idea, a difficult philosophy to defeat. It's just that we're not interested for some reason. We're not yet, we don't get it yet. But once we get there, all of our ideas, I mean, and I know most people here today feel a sense of shame when they talk about Western civilization. But the ideas and principles of Western civilization with all their weaknesses and with all their pathologies are far superior to anything that Sharia has to offer. We shouldn't be embarrassed about saying that. That should be where we begin the conversation. Last question. This time I'm going to quote President Trump. This is Donald Trump speaking this month in Warsaw. Quote, the fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Yeah. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? Close quote. Does the West have the will to survive? Is that the fundamental question? That's a fundamental question, yeah. That is the fundamental question. He said these words in Poland and they were well received. And what I've noticed, I'm, I'm, you know, I came to the West in 1992, so I'm a newcomer. But uh, you're doing fine. <laughs> thank you. In in this short period, what I notice is those to whom freedom came late, they are the ones who are willing to fight. The, the, the Poles having suffered the for, Poles, for four decades. The Hungarians, under the, con yes. the Eastern Europeans. You know, for them, it is not some vague story in history. It's, they still know what it was like to be under the Soviet Union, to be behind that Iron Curtain, to have no freedom. They know what a totalitarian ideology is. They recognize it and they're willing to fight for the core principles of freedom. And that's what Western civilization has 
uh, has granted in to a certain degree to human beings and has promoted and has established systems that protect that individual freedom. They know that. The Northern Europeans, to some degree Americans, who have been free for so long that they don't know what freedom is anymore. They are the ones who are in this, uh, I think, moral, um, moral twist about and wringing their hands and thinking, you know, how can we defend Western civilization? I mean, what is Western civilization? Is it white supremacism or is it something else? And if our, our leaders, if our elites cannot tell the difference between white nationalism and Western civilization, or what it is that makes America great again, then I think we're in big trouble. We'll have to depend on those Eastern Europeans to so, defend so us. <laughs> that's the, the, this really is the last question. Yeah. I kept saying last question. This one really is the last question. Yeah. If the question is whether the West has the courage to defend itself, has the will to defend itself, then you've just identified the central sub-question within that question, and that is, will the United States of America stop wringing its hands? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I hate to say it, but something has to happen to make us focus and to stop wringing our hands. Uh, you know, just turn on the news and the first thing you hear is about North Korea testing missiles that could hit us. Then there's the whole radical Islamic phenomenon. There's this rise of China, which is, uh, again, in its expression, anti-Western. And looking at all of that, I think it, it is, I don't know, I feel a sense of urgency. I hope that you feel a sense of urgency, that we have something to defend. But unfortunately, something, and, and this, is, this is not my analysis, this is what I hear from other people. This is Americans first try all the bad options and they try all the, before, and then the very last one will right. be. Now, if, if that's the case, I hope we have time this time. <laughs> yeah. Ayan Hirsi Ali, author, most recently of The Challenge of Dawa, and mother, you're, you're expecting your second child. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter, for having me. For the Hoover Institution and Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson.